0: Hey, it's Freddie Cruz, and my job is to extract the stories behind the individual's businesses and organizations that make the greater Houston area great. One such individual you have seen on TV, and I'm sure you have read his books. He's got more than 30 of them. His name is Tom Abrams. He is an Emmy Award winning and Edward R. Murrow Award winning TV journalist, and his latest series is called Prepper which is about America after an electromagnetic pulse attack. During this episode, we talk about his insane level of productivity, who in Houston would be least likely to survive such an attack, and of course, his latest series. Catch up with him on Amazon and on all the socials. And if you like this episode as much as I did recording and producing it for you, then please share with a family member or friend and sign up for the newsletter at cruisethroughhtx.com.
1: Hi, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey, it's Katy Perry. This is your man, Florida, with Freddie Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz.
0: Freddie Cruz. let's go pick Mr. 305, and you already know what it is. My name is Freddie, and it's time to cruise through HTX. Let's first begin with what an EMP is and how you used this horrifying weapon to create the story Prepper.
1: So an EMP is an electromagnetic pulse, and essentially it, it can be a byproduct of a nuclear weapon or it can be deployed on its own. And in a lot of fictional accounts, it's typically deployed by a foreign adversary and oftentimes dropped by an airplane or as a result of a nuclear attack. In this story, I decided to use a domestic terror plot. And so in this case, uh, at the same time, the Texas grid fails, uh, which at first everybody believes was a natural occurrence, but it it was in fact hacked by the same people who then used weather balloons to deploy electromagnetic pulse weapons over um, the major metropolitan areas of Texas. And what an EMP does essentially is it sends this pulse that kills all electronics, or what they believe would be most electronics, unless they're somehow protected uh, in what would be called a Faraday cage or it, or are underground. Some way have uh, an encasement that would prevent it from receiving the pulse such that it would kill the battery or the electronic components. And so typically the only things that are going to work are things that don't have computer software or electronic components, which means in this case, not only does the grid fail, but then cars die, cell phones die, the towers themselves don't work, computers are gone. And so unlike what we found in COVID-19, for the most part, there's no communication either. You know, A lot of people, when there was a pandemic and everybody was isolated, lived off the fact that they, they could at least communicate on their phones or computers or watch television. And that's not the case uh, in the setup of Prepper.
0: Based on your body of work, you seem obsessed with death and destruction and annihilation and total <laughs> obliteration of
1: society.
0: <laughs> but you're like the
1: coolest, uh, calmest obsessed. guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know my wife sometimes says, where did this come from? Um, so uh, the reason I write post-apocalyptic, actually, uh, is I originally started writing political thrillers and uh, befriended another author named Stephen Conkley, who wrote sort of this cross between political thrillers and then also post-apocalyptic or dystopian adventures. And uh, through a, he had a deal with Amazon where they approached me and asked me if I would write a novella set in one of the worlds he'd created. Essentially fan fiction, but authorized and compensated for it. And so instead of writing one, because I didn't have a name in that genre, I wrote three short stories that essentially became a a novel. And they did really well. And he encouraged me to do more research and start writing in that world. And so I did. And I wrote a book called Home. And for whatever reason, um, it started, Amazon liked it, started promoting it. It popped up on people's Kindles and it kind of exploded and sort of launched my career because for, for years in the first several books, I really wasn't making anything, uh, as a traditional author published by another company or as an independent author. And so when that happened and I found that people liked the way I wrote that world, that's sort of where I focused 95% of my energy. And so, yeah, there's a lot of death and destruction. One thing you don't find in my books, however, uh, there's really not any sex, and there's no, there are no cuss words. Uh, there's a lot of violence, but those other two don't exist.
0: It's interesting because I've talked with Brad Thor before, and I know that his readers, um, if I had to guess, his readers would also read your type of books also, um, but they, they complain about, about his main character cursing, and it's like, yeah, Scott Harvath is a Navy SEAL.
1: And these guys, most people are, these guys kind of, you know, (laughs) right. The thing about it is, so I think, you know, for most people in an apocalypse, they're not necessarily, at least not instantly, they're not going to see gangs of marauders coming to knock on their door. Um, I do think the world in that circumstance might become a little more violent and a little more unpredictable and less safe. I don't think it happens as fast as it does in books, but you have to entertain people um, you know, you have to get to the point. And so you have to walk this line between boring people because nothing happens and being so unrealistic that five minutes after the world ends, you know, there's gunplay everywhere. And so you try to walk that line. But but I do find also that killing off characters that people become attached to also has a pretty good literary effect a lot, a lot of times they don't see coming or they, um, it, it makes them, it propels the story forward in a way they didn't expect. So yeah, there's, uh, there's a fair amount of violence. I'm not a violent person. If anything, I'm conflict avoiding.
0: (laughs) I believe it. Well, as, as writers, it's like, um, it's almost a way to just kind of project something or kind of like tap into something that, something different. It's, Instead of consuming TV and watching a show that's that that's violent and that that tells the dystopian tale of a society or whatever, you're just creating something.
1: Right. And people bring to it their own thing. I think you, you found as an author that maybe you intended one thing in a story, but readers, I mean, for every reader, there's a different interpretation of what you wrote or what you meant. And the other thing that I find, too, that you may have found is that people will transpose what you write onto you as a person. So they think... My political beliefs or my way my approach to things would be exactly uh, what a particular character's approach would be i mean i you know i've been told i 'm as liberal as they come i've been told i'm a right wing conservative i mean but those are characters those that 's not me yeah, and so it, it's interesting to me how how people will take a character or a story and make it you know well, this is how I feel or this is how I see things it's often. Most of the time, ninety-nine percent of the time, not the case.
0: It's like uh, something that we write, not you. We or writers will write that maybe that maybe they forgot about that they forgot they wrote a certain part in a story that a reader will pick up on and then they'll they'll conflate it with something as you mentioned, and you'll be like. I forgot that I wrote that uh, that that part was that part was not very meaningful in the overall grand scheme of the entire plot. But OK, I'm glad you conflated that. And now you think I'm some kind of villain in your story.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And I have found so I will give you an example that is incredibly polarizing. So I wrote Home um, in 2015. And at the time, you know, it was the genesis of the 2016 political <laughs> campaign. And Donald Trump was not necessarily the divisive figure he's become. And so the wife of the main character uh, in a flashback scene is wearing a Make America Great Again (laughs) t-shirt, right? Which at the time didn't have the same meaning that it does to a lot of people now. And so so I found that there were – I was getting a lot of reviews from people thinking – this is years later – Thinking that I was, you know, a a Make America Great Again sympathizer or uh, that I was a, you know, Christo fascist in their (laughs) words. It was a t shirt that a wife was wearing. Um, No different than in another book where I had a a character wearing a Kinky for Governor, uh, Kinky Friedman for Governor t shirt. It didn't mean anything to me. And So I went back and I took it out, not because, not because I I think I took it out just because I just didn't want the, I didn't, I didn't want to be perceived anyway. I, you know, I didn't want to be perceived as from the left. I didn't want to be perceived as from the right. I just want people to read the story. And if that, if something like that takes them out of the story and makes them think about the author, then I've failed. Now it still exists in the audio version because that hasn't been re-recorded. but all the print versions and the ebook versions don't have that reference anymore. But it's it's fascinating to me how I, met, I didn't even think about it and moved on and but it stuck with people and then they then they paint the entire novel with that particular brush.
0: I wouldn't even say that you failed as an author because they can't dis, they can't disassociate themselves from a freaking T-shirt. I mean that's just wild to me. I mean, have we really gotten that? Far deep in our own silos. I say we, but, you know, talking about people.
1: Um, right. Uh, it's, in, it, it, yeah, we're in politically divisive times. That is,
0: uh, that's something. It doesn't surprise me, but that's just wild. You know, something that you wrote in the book, Prepper, that I just loved, and you talk about not cursing, and I feel like uh, this. Totally, like you make up in the descriptions and and the plotting and sort of the psychology behind these characters and whatnot that you really, like you said, is you don't, you don't miss it. And so it's his abdomen looked like a coroner's charcuterie and it took heroic, heroic. I cannot say that word. It took heroic will for Jack to suppress the rising tide of nausea in his gut. That right there is literary magic. I mean, a coroner's charcuterie. Man, how many drafts did it take for you to get a, get to a line like that? Was it um was it the result of writing in flow or was it several drafts in that you had to perfect it?
1: I'm trying to think where that was in the book. Um that's that's probably that's probably that might be first draft, but it could be second draft too because a lot of times I'll sit there if if I'm trying to find a new way to describe something, I'll sit there for a minute and maybe I'll play with it, you know, and I'll write something. I'll go, no, 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 that didn't work. And I'll go back. Um, but thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it creates an image.
0: I mean, I went on my run this morning before talking with you and I just kept thinking about a a charcuterie and the human body.
1: And I'm like, that's twisted. (laughs) Well, I guess, yeah, it is. It is. Um, but you know i think you know i've written um i'm writing my 39th novel now and i think that when you've written that many words you're const- you're afraid of using the same descriptions and words over and over again and my editor is constantly telling me you used eyes too many mm. times so i'm i and i do use eyes to describe things um yeah. so i'm constantly Trying to find new ways to to paint a picture without using the same words, and it's it, and when you say hard.
0: eyes, are you talking about eyes in the first person? I like I love you, or the organs, yeah. eyes,
1: like the organs, like you know, his eyes did this, or her yeah. eyes did that, or mm-hmm. you know that b- because I'm trying to convey a reaction with I'm trying to show without telling, and sometimes I use the same thing too much to do that.
0: Yeah, that's hard. Uh, especially when you're writing a 200 or even three or 400 page book. Of course, the 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 longer the book, the easier it is to sort of fall into that sort of. I don't want to call that a a crutch, but it's easy to use the same thing. Um, and I remember narrating a book last summer, and um, and I didn't realize how how much the author used the word. He nodded. <laughs> until probably about halfway through. And I'm like, yeah, he sure does nod a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a, you know, nodded shakes, you know, shaking of the head, like shrugged. Those are things. And I'll go back. That's something that I'll, I'll consciously go back during the editing process. And I'll search for those repeated phrases. Um, I also use a program that helps me find repeated phrases. And, um, and so I try to, Find other ways to do it. I don't know that I always succeed at it, but that's like I'm I'm consciously aware of, of that. I don't think I've used charcuterie too many times.
0: <laughs> what from your career as a TV journalist inspires any of what you write?
1: Even though there are frequently journalists in the in the books that I write not all of them but a lot of them and sometimes they're TV journalists sometimes they're TV journalists from Houston that are in in the in the books and I probably draw a little bit from my experiences more of just ob- observing people and the way they behave than I do from actual stories that I've covered and I think that's that's the one thing that is that really inspires the writing is that as a as a reporter I'm out all the time meeting new people talking to new people and it's not just people in one you know, socioeconomic group. It's across the board, and so I, I get an idea. I'm in different neighborhoods: very wealthy, not so wealthy, uh, young people, old people. I, I, so I'm able to observe the way people behave and the way they talk and the way they live. And so I think that helps in my writing because I'm able to first have firsthand experience in a variety of environments that most people wouldn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily have. And if I don't know something, also, there are a lot of people I can reach out to and ask, how would this happen? Or what would this, you know, like, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not, uh, a ham. I don't have a ham radio, but I have a couple of people who are um, one who lives in California named Steve Kramer, one who lives here, uh, Jerry Dillard, who are hams. And they, I'll write a scene or a couple of scenes, and then I'll send it to them and say, does this ring true? Um, so I think my, that's a really long answer to a very short question, but I, but I think that's, um, it's, it's mostly, it's just, it's, it's not necessarily any one story. It's just a combination of experiencing different people from different backgrounds.
0: Last we spoke, you mentioned creating books by recording voice memos in your phone, sometimes while driving. And I may or may not be asking this selfishly but uh what would be your advice for somebody who has a story who has a solid idea for a story but little time they're driving a lot and this might be a useful tool to dictate their first story or in my case maybe a fourth story
1: (laughs) so um well, what I do is I usually, I'll get in the, I have like an hour commute. And so I'll get in the car and I'll give myself a few minutes just to kind of get acclimated into the car and let the air conditioning on and then play music for a few minutes. And then I have a point at which I'm like, okay, I'm turning on the device. And then I turn it on and I just start talking. And I talk as if I'm, it's, I do find it easier, like the book I'm Marcus, which is told in first person. That was really easy to do that way because it's stream of consciousness and I can always go back and fix it. When it's third person, it's a little more difficult. But I just find that um, I just it I just talk about what I want the story. You know, I, a lot of dialogue is easy to do that way, and then I just go back and fix it. Um, so I really look at that as sort of almost like a a rough, rough, rough draft. But you know, I you can get in forty five minutes. I can get a thousand or twelve hundred words written, which is like you know three or four pages. And that, that usually takes me between an hour and two or hour, you know, maybe two hours to write that much. Cause I write between 500 and a thousand words an hour, just depending on what I'm writing. And so th- that's, I think is get in the car, get acclimated, then start hit record and just start talking. And you can always go back and delete it, treat it as a rough, rough draft. Um, I think the, the trick for me is talking in a way that allows me to dictate where I'm saying uh, new paragraph quote. I don't like that comma quote. He said, period mm-hmm. quotation mark. I'd rather this period quote new paragraph. That's, you know, that, and that takes a little getting used to, but once you get into it, then you can just, it becomes habit.
0: Follow up. Do you use like a, some sort of AI transcription device? So now that you have the voice memo, you, upload it to, uh, the cloud. And then when Tom gets home, you download it to your desktop and then you upload it to something like Riverside, which is the program that we're using to record this, uh, this, this interview and you have the transcriptions. And then from the transcriptions, you're like, okay, here's all the, the stuff that I'm going to edit and revise. And then you're like a madman. And then you've got your, your, your book completely edited within however many times, you know, weeks it takes to, to get there.
1: So I have an app on my phone, and, and the, for, when you're done with a file, you hit, you know, like when you're done recording, you hit stop, and then I email it to myself. You can email it. And so then from the email, I then cut and paste it and put it into the Word document wow. I'm working on, and then I just go through it. Yeah. Like that.
0: Yeah. Does that yeah. make
1: sense? That, that's how I do it. Um, and so then essentially I've got that first draft, and then when I go through it, it's a second draft already. Man.
0: Can you imagine if Hemingway had this kind of technology at his fingertips?
1: His sentences still would have been as short, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And there are some authors I know who this is, that's all they do. And, and there are functions like uh, I'm talking to you on a Mac. There are functions on a Mac where you can transcribe directly into your program, talking mm-hmm. to your Mac. And I know a lot of authors that do that and they can get, I mean, they could do 10,000 words in a day. I just, I'm, that's, I have to, I, I go in spurts of where I do that and where I, where I don't. And the book I'm currently writing, which is Prepper 2, I don't think I've used transcription at all for that. I'm just in this phase where I'm just I'm just typing it.
0: So, the book is Prepper, it's number 1 in a series of 5, and before we wrap up, Tom, let's do a short lightning round beginning with the part of Houston most likely to survive the aftermath of an electromagnetic pulse attack. Oh my gosh! Answer wisely, even though your first chapter is in the woodlands.
1: Sure, the most any rural part of Houston, like say Atascosa, New Caney, cut and shoot. Uh, those are going to be the areas that survive because they're not in the they're not in the urban core, and the people who live there are more likely self sustaining in the way that they live their lives to begin with.
0: Well, I think I might know the answer to the next one: the part of Houston least likely to survive the aftermath of an EMP attack. <laughs>
1: Downtown, <laughs> the Galleria oh man those, those, those probably two, those two areas
0: What if you were to go to the very top floor of the West End at the Galleria? How long do you think it would take before you get marauded?
1: <laughs> oh if you, if you were to, if you were to hide there?
0: Tom has a huge backpack full of food with his family. How, how long do you think you might be able to stick it out if you don't have a gun <laughs> it would be
1: it would it would be a pretty long time because there's no elevator. So whoever is coming for you is going to have to climb all those stairs. They're going to be a lot less likely to do that.
0: Half of America is out of shape. I mean, you've got a
1: great point. And they have to do it in the dark. Uh, They'd have to do it in the dark. See?
0: Okay. All right. (laughs) I like his odds. Uh, In a post-apocalyptic world, what would be your go-to hiding spot in the Houston area?
1: Good question. I... I don't know if I'd stay in the Houston area. Well, I mean, I you wouldn't know. really I mean, have
0: much of a choice, though, because if your vehicle is connected to the grid, because it's, a, you know, like, I mean, everything, even if it's not an EV, it's connected to some sort of electricity, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have the old Ford pickup truck that the main character has that's EMP-proof. Um, so, gosh, I don't know. I'd hide in the closet on the first floor. I mean, I've frequently said I'll be the first person to die in an apocalypse. So, I don't know. I don't I I don't know where i go, to be honest with you. I mean, I have, I have, I will say, I mean, I do have a bug out bag in my car. All of us do. Like we have, you know, uh, my kids, my wife, we all have like survival bags in our trunks, um, which are good, not just for for an apocalypse, but if you were to get into some sort of accident or you got stuck somewhere or there's an emergency, you know, um, so... Oh, and those little garments they use, both of my kids have those, so I mean, I would say we're we are definitely suburban preppers <laughs> i mean we're we're more prepared than most, yeah, but we're not like i'm not off grid and self self sufficient
0: well uh, I'm looking at the background, it looks like you are in a home and not in a bunker that's fifty feet underground, so i mean you're
1: <laughs> I wish I could afford a bunker,
0: <laughs> yeah, you and me both i mean there look, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be prepared for the worst. There really is nothing wrong at all. I appreciate, though, that you're a student of the craft.
1: (laughs) Well, it's true. I mean, because, and and I've said this in books, people either agree or disagree with me, but an apocalypse is what happens to you that changes your life, right? It doesn't have to be Hurricane Harvey. Mm -hmm. It, It could be just your neighborhood loses power for a week. It could be, I mean, it could be any a number of things. It could be a fire that destroys your home. That's an apocalypse to you. I mean, look at what's happening in Maui. I mean, that's, that's an apocalypse on the island of Maui, even though it's not what we would typically think of as as an apocalyptic event.
0: Final two questions, Tom. The most underrated survival tool in a post-apocalyptic world.
1: The most underrated um, well, life straws are are pretty important, I think, because and and having a silcock key, because those are both access to water. Okay, so I'm which you can live a long time. Yeah, about. and I'm sorry to interrupt.
0: I know what a life straw is. It's like a filtering device. But what's sure. the other thing you
1: talked about? So a silcock key, so you know, like the key that you have um, to uh, turn on the gas in a fireplace. Okay, you know, the little silver key, and it's got like a square hole, and you turn it. Yeah. Okay. So those access water on the outside of commercial buildings, um, maybe even on some houses, and they'll, they'll turn on a water spigot. And so having a Silcock key, which is just a, $3 or whatever, you have that in your backpack, and you come across, say, a school that's been abandoned as you are trekking across the desolate landscape of a post-apocalyptic Southeast Texas, you can plug that in, turn it, and it water will come out. So I would say those access to water I think is is the biggest thing. And then um, I mean the other a lot of the stuff is the other stuff is is more obvious, but I think I think those are underrated. Oh, and lots of socks, lots of socks.
0: That is that cannot be overstated. I hate dirty, moldy, crusty. Socks.
1: Because if your socks get wet, if your socks tear, whatever, and you're hiking, you want you want to have an extra pair of socks.
0: Twenty days after an EMP attack, you stumble across a big bag of non-perishable food. It's huge. What do you hope it is, and how much does the Abrams family charge when they decide to monetize this finding of loot?
1: <laughs> good. Those are good questions. One, I just hope it's not spam. Um, not a huge canned pork guy, but, uh, I'll tell you 20 days out, anything, it doesn't matter to me what it is. As long as it's edible, it's fine. I'm not going to be picky about it. Um, prefer it not be spam, but just about anything else would be fine. Chef party would be great, but, um, how much would we charge? I mean, is money worth anything? There you go. What would we trade for? I think it depends on whatever we were, whatever we were lacking at the time, whatever we didn't have. Maybe it would be shelter. Maybe it would be ammunition. Um, I think we, we, would, we would be careful about what we would trade for. It would be whatever we needed that we didn't have.
0: Prepper is the series. Tom Abrams is the author. Y'all, grab this book if you want to go on a wild apocalyptic ride. Would you survive? An EMP attack here in the city of Houston. I love you all who are listening. My guess would be probably not. Probably not. I'm sorry. As optimistic as I am, I, I've read stories. I've read news stories where they say 90 plus percent of people wouldn't survive past like month number one. So I'm just going by the stats. I'm going by the stats. Tom, my man, I've enjoyed speaking with you. Congratulations on another, on another smash
1: Hey, Freddie, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for inviting me and uh, taking the time to talk to me about my obsession with death and destruction.
0: Hey, it's me. I'm back with a quick little nudge. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did putting it together for you, then please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the newsletter at cruise through HTX.com and share with your family and friends. Thank you.